Civil Sentinel Podcast. The Civil Sentinel Podcast is brought to you by Zavala1836.com. That's Z-A-V-A-L-A 1836.com. If you like all things tactical apparel and stickers, head on over, check it out. It supports the podcast. How's it going, guys? Yo, good evening. What's up? Good evening. Tonight we are joined by Tactical Comms on Instagram. Uh, his name's Matthew. Uh, Matthew's got a uh, quite a bit of experience with comms and he's made himself a career in comms as well. He's got a lot under his belt and he's put out some really good content. So we thought it'd be a great idea to have him on. Matthew, how are you? I'm doing great guys. How are you guys doing? Amazing. Just wonderful, man. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. This is a treat. Yeah. I'm glad you got to come on and really been uh, eager for this one. Uh, uh, lo- love your content that you're putting out, especially some of the SDR videos you put out, SDR Sharp and your DSD Plus and, and all that stuff. That's really good material. I know a lot of people are curious about that stuff. SDR is really hot these days. You're doing the thing that a lot of people want to do and don't really know how. So it's really good to see your content and we'll get into a little bit of that tonight. Awesome. Excited to be here and talk about it. For sure. For sure, man. So where are you from? So I'm from South Carolina. I've been here my whole life. I mean, I'm sure you and your listeners can't tell that I'm not from up north with my accent, but... Uh, you mean you're not from Idaho? I am not from Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a first. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I'm from South Carolina, from uh, the northwestern por- portion up in the mountains uh, near the uh, North Carolina border. Are you near um, Clemson area? I sure am. Uh, the only football team in the country. Just put that out there. <laughs> there you go. I did uh, I did a few jobs out in uh, Seneca. Uh, so I spent some time up there. It's a beautiful area, man. Those lakes and the trees, and it's just absolutely gorgeous out there. So I am about, I live about 45 minutes northeast of Seneca. Uh, there's no easy way to get from my house to Seneca, but yeah, I know where you're talking about. I know your area. That's awesome. And Tito's kind of neighbors with you. He's down in Florida, so not too far. I'm excited for Tito to finally start getting into HF so we can do some NVIS stuff together. You think we can hit NVIS from Florida to South Carolina? It'll be a stretch, but even if we can't, we should be able to to do 40 during the day, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that would be real cool. I'm I'm looking into the HF thing. That might be the next radio buy is uh, doing some kind of an HF rig. Because at least if I if I can't get like people around me to get an HF rig, I can at least start stretching <laughs> the legs right. out to uh, to the guys in Idaho. Civil, if you do it, I could hop up, try get you in Texas. I try and get you in South Carolina. So it'd be fun. And then I could even try and do my own like local NVIS stuff. Just maybe if I bought two rigs and everything, like Wyoming Survival said, buy, buy two rigs, two computers, and <laughs> set a base station up at the house and and do it that way. That's right. I'm working on it. I got a uh, I got a Q90. I just bid on on uh, eBay today. Uh, the Q- I'm G90? gonna start simple. The the, the Zygu G90. Oh, the G90. Yeah, I'm sorry. G90. You're gonna have to let uh, me know how you th- what you think about that because that's that, I think that's what I'm leaning towards for my starter HF and then putting maybe building out like a 
Pelican case for it just so I could take it in the field without having to worry. Yeah, I'm going to start there. It's, you know, the the price point's good. It's got a good reputation. It seems to be a lot better than the 6100. No, I like the Lab 599 a lot. I like the ICOM 701. The 701 or the 705? 701, right? 705. 705. Yeah, 705. I like that one a lot. I really like the Lab uh, five nine nine, like uh, like Daniel or Tani Alu is using. I do too. Um, yeah. I tell you, that's that's something I really want to get my hands on. Um, I'm running an Elcraft KX two right now for my um, my radio that's in my pack. So uh, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what got you into comms, and how long have you been in the comms? So I grew up in it. Um, my, I, I was fortunate to, fortunate or unfortunate, however you choose to look at it, to grow up before cell phones were so accessible. And uh, my family was big into ham radio. And so I remember uh, family vacations being on ham radio and <clears throat> talking on the ham radio. My dad had a two meter rig in the car and um, I, he made the deal with me that, hey, if you'll get your license i'll buy you your first radio so uh, in 1994 i tested and got my technician class of course back then you had uh, no code tech and then technician and i was a no code tech at the time and uh, at the same time i'm starting had already started in my fire service career and realized that there was a huge need for radio communications in the public safety uh, world and fortunate to start getting um, exposure to public or to emergency communications through the agencies that I worked for. Um, so I didn't do anything with um, upgrading my technician license for several years and until uh, I went to work uh, for a county managing their communication system and we were under the emergency management umbrella. <clears throat> I started learning more about vulnerabilities and gaps in emergency management world, not only in the public safety sector, but in the community as well and started seeing the value in HF and what really piqued my interest in HF was WinLink. Um, WinLink was just that that was a game changer for me in emergency management in the communications world and so I, I got there and uh, then of course that took me down a lot of, of various paths and we can talk about that a little bit later as you you, you lead it but um, it's it's always been a part of my life it's been uh, something I enjoy and I, I hope that my content that I put out uh, demonstrates my passion for it as well yeah, you seem to be very knowledgeable on HF. I know uh, you're in one of the group chats uh, that we got out there, and I know a lot of guys. Comms and Logistics is very interested in your HF experience and uh, expertise there. I know you you've answered a lot of questions that a lot of these guys have had. How long have you? How long were you in radio before you got into HF? And I guess the next question from there is how long you been in HF? So. Um, my earliest memories of HF were my dad, when I was a kid, my dad would go out to his shack. I think, I can't remember if it was Wyoming Survival or, or somebody, one of your guests uh, talked about the shack and that's just a building that Ham's called with their radio building. He would go out every Saturday morning and do HF foam patches for 
missionaries uh, abroad. And a lot of people, when you talk about a phone patch, like, what the heck is a phone patch? But you have to remember that, that communications hasn't always been as accessible as it is today. And it used to be very, very expensive to make a, an overseas phone call. And so what my dad would do is he would make HF radio contact with a missionary overseas and then connect his HF radio to a telephone to call locally here in the States. Or, you know, it's much cheaper to do it that way. So that was my first exposure to HF. And I got into HF. I can't remember the year I upgraded to General, but it would have been around 2007 time frame. And um, I really started. No, 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 no. It was, it was earlier than that because... I took my HF rig with me to Hurricane Katrina in Slidell, Louisiana, and St. Bernard, Chalmette, Louisiana, during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, so the disaster communications piece of it was was tremendous. It was huge to to get to start, or that's what really got me into HF. And uh, prior to HF, through so 1994 to 2005-ish, uh, was without HF, and then 2005 since. Right on. You you got a you got a lot of years under your belt. That's awesome. Yeah, man. that's awesome. Well, the one thing I'd tell you, you know, and I think this is part of our questions later, but no one of us. You, you mentioned earlier that answering questions. No one of us is as smart as all of us, and, and it takes all of us to learn and learn together. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, that's the cool thing about you know radio and communications is, and I, and I figured this out very quickly when I started even just studying for my technician license when I was first getting into all this, and I was like. Wow, I was like the 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 world of communications uh, is it's a massive ocean essentially, and it's basically impossible to learn and cover. Um, you know the the whole thing. You you basically pick and choose where what you want to specialize in, and then other people pick and choose the areas they want to specialize in, and then you can collaborate from there. I agree. And, you know, and I think, you know, that unfortunately, we as ham radio operators have kind of have on occasion given ham radio a bad name. But I think that's what's unique about or cool about ham radio is there's something there for everybody. I don't enjoy contesting. I don't enjoy voice on HF. I, I like the emergency communications, the digital modes. That's what I enjoy doing. I like the QRP or low power. I like figuring out what is the bare minimum I can use to establish comms between two points. That's what I enjoy doing. And you know what? That's okay. That's <laughs> they rock old. That's it, it's something there for everybody. Yeah, that's really close to the area I want to get into with HF as well, is exactly what you just yeah. said. And, you know, that's a, an interesting point that you make. Something we've touched on on previous podcasts is uh, for the MCOM, TATCOM world, that's kind of more where this podcast is geared and where our chats are geared and a lot of these in Instagram pages are geared towards. You no, know, I'm kind of working backwards. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of what do I need to achieve as far as communications goes, and work backwards from there? How do I fill in those gaps? I think it depends on what you want to do. So, you know, what's your goal? What what, what gap are you trying to fill with emergency communications? Uh, if your gap is, hey, I just want me and my teammates to have close-in secure comms, then there's a, a, a method, there's multiple methods, multiple tools that you can do that with. If you want wide area communications, um, you know, there's another set of tools and skills that go with that. Uh, if I, I think the first question you really have to ask is what gap are you intending to fill with your desire to get into emergency communications? And so we'll just, we'll ask you the question and I'll see if I can answer it. What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying, what gap oh, yeah, are you no, trying no, to fill? Oh yeah, no, no, for sure. 
Originally, uh, getting into comms for me was um, I started off in the in the three gun world, going to three gun competitions, and then that quickly led into I want to learn more about tactics, team tactics, small unit tactics, and that kind of led me down the rabbit trail eventually to to joining uh, a militia here in Texas. And the militia was a bunch of police officers, firefighters, veterans, uh, but the guys who led it were all 82nd Airborne guys, and they basically use their expertise, what they use during the Iraq, Afghanistan years and taught small squad uh, fire team tactics. And so naturally communications was a big part of that. And so we're talking, you know, inner team communications, communicating to the team leader over radio on a patrol. The kind of the, the next ring out from there would be something along the lines of that. We got to talk to another fire team that's either a QRF element or a overwatch element or something like that and coordinate movement. And then, you know, even going a little bit more bigger picture, the next ring out from there is both fire teams active in the exercise. You need to talk to a command element and relay our position and our movements and what we're observing and, you know, letting the command element kind of steer us. I, I have filled a lot of those gaps in when we were doing that stuff. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not with a militia anymore. We still do some team training and stuff like that, but not militia centric by any means. And this is a whole other conversation, but militia is kind of a bad word these days and has a bad stigma. I don't think it should be, but it is. <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of the team stuff we do now is more geared less towards tactical and more towards MCOM, emergency communications. But uh, when I got into that stuff, you know, I was dealing with a bunch of guys with bow fangs and, and nobody knew how to use their bow fangs. For me, it was step one was, okay, I need to figure out how to do these things so I can program mine and maybe show these guys how to program theirs. You know, that's, that, that was how, that was my slip into the rabbit hole, if you will. <laughs> you got sucked in. <laughs> No, those are great. Those are great examples. It sounds like you've got a, a little bit of experience somewhat overlapping with that kind of realm in the in the public safety side of things. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. What's your in your professional experience with public safety and radio and, and all that stuff? What, what you got going on there? Well, believe it or not, you know, your experience that you just gave there that people not knowing how to use a radio is uh, is pretty common across the country uh not you, you'd look at, at public safety and say these guys are, are are great these guys are geniuses that that they know what they're doing and you know that's not the case it's the same way uh that what you experienced they've got a radio um many agencies uh will go to the firing range multiple times a year to qualify with their their weapons but then they don't train a single time during the year with the radio they use your radio on every call they go on and may not use their weapon in most cases they don't but yet the tool they use the most they train the least on the tool they use the least they train the most on so there's some gaps there so what my job was was to become the public safety side of what's commonly called now is the rto or the radio telecommunications officer and um I started looking at how we could make communications successful for not only specialized teams but for groups as well and so uh, the SWAT teams that I worked with, we would put them oftentimes on a simplex tactical channel. And simplex is just a name for uh, radio to radio or direct line of sight. It didn't use repeaters, towers, things like that. It was just a tactical direct channel. 
and uh, we put them on an encrypted uh, digital channel that uh, we could ensure they were going to be able to talk as reliably as possible. So the, the, in the public safety world, we get a little bit nosy and we like hearing what's going on from across town. So the problem with that is, is if you're a firefighter and you're interior in a structure fire, um, your signal from your radio has to travel from inside that building to a tower to the, what you mentioned, the QRF, in the fire service call it RIT, Rapid Intervention Team, uh, sit standing outside in the yard waiting to you. And so we're asking the weakest part of our communications link, the handheld radio, to go all the way across town to a tower site to talk to the guy that's just right on the other side of the wall for us. And so teaching these guys to go simplex to <clears throat> use that common denominator that, or that, that, that lowest common denominator to establish communications was a big part of what we did. And uh, so then we, we took that a step farther, further for the tactical teams that are not just tactical um, uh, sensitive teams that needed uh, secure communications and we started setting them up on uh, wide area or regional comms uh, to do that as well uh, key things that we did was we changed encryption keys fairly routinely um, and kept those things close hold but the the main dispatch channels things like that were always in the clear uh, we were I was fortunate to work for leadership that uh, really understood the value of keeping those things clear. That's awesome, man. Well, let me ask you this. How did those uh, teams that you guys were training and setting up simplex channels, how did they respond to your training and instruction? Initially, they, they resisted. Uh, you know, there's only two things people hate as change in the way things are. And so once they figured out that they, they would, we tried to tell them, hey, look, we, you really need to move to this simplex channel. And they didn't want to do it because, like I said, we're nosy. We want to hear what's going on across town. And then they started complaining because comms didn't work. And I'm like, look, you complain because comms don't work. I'm giving you a solution that will work, but you don't want to use that solution. So either try the solution or stop complaining. And to their credit, they stopped complaining and tried the solution and it worked. And so they're still doing business today uh, the same way. Uh, it, it's a little tough. Um, I think getting people to see the value in effective communications is, is critical. And then one thing that I was fortunate to have some mentors that did was uh, I oftentimes speak a little too technical. That's very easy to do with this hobby. It is. It so is. And so they were really good to, to talk me down and say, okay, look, if they ask you what time it is, don't tell them how to build a clock. Just tell them what time it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. That, that helped, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I, can, I can see where you're coming from there. I have a couple friends who are in law enforcement um, in the area that I live in. And I mean, for the most part and all the other like law enforcement I meet, they don't know how to use their radios other than this button make talk. That's, yeah, you're right. That's <laughs> all they know. They don't know how to go into the menu, the settings and zones, um, channels. Yeah, I think I was talking uh, about it in the in the group chat the other day about how the the agency, you know, the the neighboring county, the sheriff's office uh, that my buddies work for, they're about to spend, I think, I think they were like twenty five, thirty million dollars uh, to build. I believe what he said was fourteen new tower sites. This agency is running the Harris XG one hundred P, which is a tri band P twenty five and analog radio. the The county we're in is m mostly pretty rural. The south end of the county. It, it's not urban, kind of suburban, but mostly most structures are 
four stories or less, and it's still pretty dispersed and good amount of vegetation. And I learned that they're running on just through repeater book and all this stuff is just publicly available information, but they're running mostly like 700, 800 megahertz. And they're my buddies telling me there's about to spend all this money on these 14 new tower sites because they don't have comms. There's tons of dead zones throughout the county, especially the more rural north end of the county. And I was like, dude, you guys are doing this all wrong. I was like, first off, it's pretty much standard that the officers run their radios on their belts in a pouch without a without an antenna relocation kit. So they're running seven eight hundred off a belt. Keep in mind, like I said, these are tri band radios. I'm sure you guys know this. And I suggested my friend. I was like, dude, I don't know how the Harris repeaters work for the towers, but I would imagine if you're using the Harris repeaters and you're using the XG one hundred P's, I'd imagine everything's tri band and everything communicates that way. So you could just reprogram these radios to run on VHF. I bet you would complete every comm that needed to happen, especially if you relocated your antennas uh, with an antenna relocation kit up to like your shoulder or something. And you guys could spend like a couple thousand dollars and not like 30 million dollars. There's so many variables in that, you know, and I tell you, it, that's a tough decision to make because one of the first antenna relocation kits I remember coming out was for the HT-1250, and on VHF, that thing was a disaster. Uh, antenna kits, uh, and it depends on the frequency you operate on, most antennas need a ground plane to radiate effectively. And, you know, when you take that antenna off of your radio in a handheld world, you're lessening that ground plane to work and if you think about yeah. it it makes sense because if you mount an antenna on your vehicle uh, if if you go ahead and make the decision all right i'm gonna pop a hole through my roof and you put that antenna in the center of the roof it performs better than the fender mount that you have that little angle iron on or somebody has mounted in the bumper i mean there's so many variables to it but every antenna needs some sort of ground plane uh and I don't know. That's a tough one to be in. I know this infrastructure, most infrastructure tower sites, uh, it's outside of seven and 800 megahertz. It's difficult to have uh, band splits. I mean, I think theoretically you probably could, but most people don't. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. That's a tough one. I couldn't help but think, I was like, there's some way you guys could improve your communications with, without spending $30 million. In my notes, you, you sent the notes for tonight, and I, I put it at the very top. There is no easy button. No, there is no one size fits all. <laughs> you know, the, the other factor there is it is a government contract, and everybody knows how these companies like to exploit the government contracts and get every single penny out of it that they can. So there you go. I'm pretty sure that they're yeah, they have to spend the money, otherwise, they, otherwise, it just they don't they don't get. You know, if they don't spend everything that they get allotted, then they then they get less the next year. So they basically just have to, like, max out the budget every year. I think it depends on who you are and whether you're, you know, where you are in the country, uh, what what level of government you're in uh, to that that respects. Most most uh, government entities, when they start looking at a building or at a communication system, they want there's a there's a term that or a common phrase. They look for 95 percent handheld coverage at the hip. And uh, depending on the frequency you go, it, it can get very expensive. I mean. It's up here in the mountains, 800 doesn't work very well, uh, but down around the coast, it would work perfectly. Uh, you know, So it just, just depends on where you are and what you're doing. Yeah, I remember I was reading a, a study uh, not too long ago, and I think there, there's been some posts about it too, but uh, there was a study done that basically analyzed 
uh, radio performance from uh, radios mounted on the hip, radios mounted like on the chest, and then radios with basically the antennas relocated to the shoulder. So the antenna is basically uh, sticking up around head height. And obviously, I guess having the antenna up at head height was like a 40 something percent increase in in signal strength with the antenna relocated up to the shoulder height. I can see it being an improvement. I would uh, I would want to know, you know, what the antenna relocation kit coax is, because particularly at 800 megahertz, you're going to have a good bit of loss in small quest. But I mean, you're talking three feet, so you shouldn't have that much loss. Um, the best uh, method, which is just not practical in today's time, uh, the best practice to get your maximum coverage is using your handheld in your hand at yeah. head height with the antenna straight up and down. Exactly. Uh, that is the best. That is the best. But that's not always practical because if you're a police officer, you need both hands ready to go. And you don't need to be tying up with a weir with the hand unless you you need to same way in the tactical team you know i couldn't imagine having to take a my handheld radio out of my my chest rig or however you're going to run it so i can communicate civil you, you mentioned something a little earlier you was talking about that people not knowing how to use their radio and i think that's one thing that that we see a lot of in not only mcom world but the tactical world as well um you know, it really doesn't matter what brand radio or what uh, level of digital analog encryption, whatever. It, the weakest link is always the user. It, it, it's if we're not teaching our folks to use radios, it really doesn't matter what we give them. Radio is one of those things, from my experience, that you know you can sit a class of people down and teach them and make it mandatory. But if they don't want to learn it, this stuff's just going to go way over their head. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it will. And uh, like, you know, we've talked about it before. A lot of people don't, I guess, see the value in, uh, in a rigid and, and robust communication standard. But yeah, I, I, I have the same problem trying to get people to uh, really get to, you know, want to learn uh, more about radio. I think we as a culture have become so comfortable with, with the accessibility of communications. You know, you think about what you do on your cell phone every day. And it's, you know, where I grew up in the time before cell phones, I remember what that was like. Uh, I tell this story in every communications class I teach. Uh, when my middle son was learning to drive, uh, we we rode over, uh, I don't know, about, about an hour away from home, and we got on the interstate, and I said, all right, take us home, son. And uh, he pulls his phone out of his pocket and hands it to me. And uh, I said, what do you want me to do with that? He says, plug in, uh, I need you to put home in my GPS. And I said, just get on the interstate, <laughs> South Bank, take us home. And it hit me, he did not know a life without technology. And I thought, man, this is huge. Why have I not seen this before? People don't realize how fragile our technology and our infrastructure is in communications. And when you look around in just recent years across our country, you know, there's plenty of instances where regions lost communications, whole communities lost communications for days. Look at the uh, Nashville uh, central office bombing uh, at Christmas morning, four years, uh, 2020, to, uh, 2029. Yeah, yeah. Christ, 2020 yeah, Christmas. I remember. Uh, that affected communications across multiple states. Uh, more North Carolina uh, this past year with the substation attacks. You know, an entire county was without power. And how many cell sites went down off of that? How much internet was lost off of that? You know, on and on and on. It doesn't take the big one to make us incapacitated for communications. All it takes is the guy that didn't 
call in and locate lines before he digs with the backhoe. Yeah, totally understand that. I uh, I think I've even talked about it um, before as well, but it was a maybe a month or two ago. Uh, I tried to, I was getting off work. I tried to call my fiance at home, like a couple minutes, you know, she didn't answer. It just, you know, rang through. And a couple minutes later, she texted me and was like, hey, because she knows I'm about to get off. I call her every day on my way home. And she texted me. She's like, hey, the cell service is down for the town. She heard something about somebody wrecked a car into like the cell tower or like a power line that feeds, you know, the cell tower or something. Uh, I didn't look too deeply into it, but we still had power and, and Wi-Fi at the house. So she was able to get a text out to me that way. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I was like, I got my radio with me. I got my, yeah, I got my, I got my magnetic mountain antenna uh, in my truck. So I went and I threw that that mag mount up on the roof real quick, ran the coax down through the door and hooked up my radio. And then I texted her back. I was like, hey, go grab my spare radio. And I showed her how to use it a little bit. And I keep it set to a specific frequency when I power it off. And it powers back on to that same channel every time. And I said, hey, go grab that radio off my you know, my desk, power it on and just keep it next to you, you know, wherever you're, whatever you're doing. When I get to town, I'm going to see if I can get you on the radio, you know, just using a P25 VHF. And I think I, I, right when I got to town, I was probably six miles away. I hit her up on the radio and she came right back at me, was like, Hey, yeah, I hear you, you know, everything. And then uh, we just had, you know, a, a chit chat on my, you know, the rest of the drive home for that rest of the, you know, five or six miles. And I was like, no, this is cool. That gave me a good a good test of how the voice communications is traveling across the town, which I've tested some before, just self-tested running uh, applications like SDR Sharp and, and DSD Plus and just leaving my computer running and a screen record application going and then driving around town and doing my own tests. I think I posted about that before, but yeah. Um, that's a perfect example right there. Well, you know, those examples are what led me to, you know, when I'm I'm getting ahead of you, I know I'm sorry, but it's just a good lead in. Um, it, that's what kind of led me down the path to write the book that uh, we published uh, back last year, Frozen Signals, and it's it was just about an ice storm. You know, ice storms a big threat to us in my part of the country, and and how do you deal with that? What are you going to do when you know? And you guys, a perfect example of how you reverted to radio when you didn't have cell service. I mean, that's a great example. Yeah, I was about to say civil uh, experienced that just a couple years ago, didn't you? Yeah, early, let's see, it was uh, February 2021. We had that two-week-long ice storm, and it got down to four degrees here, which never happens. And we had that went on like a Thursday, Ooh. and it did not stop dumping ice for like four days. And then we were frozen solid. What started off soft on the ground ended up as like wow. six inches of hard ice everywhere. You know, it was it was so bad that I don't know. If, I'm pretty sure it was national news, but ERCOT had to start doing rolling blackouts to be able to manage the power grid. And uh, I mean, it was a disaster. It was. We followed it here. Yeah, it was a disaster. I mean, it, it only takes a quarter inch of ice accretion to bring down power lines. So, I mean, it's, you know, we'd look at that. We worry about that in the winter here, and you know, and I, we watched you guys. That was that was unusual to see Texas iced in. Right, and it was the whole state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It it happened down here on the Gulf Coast, and well, just I I think along the most of the Gulf Coast, but in the area I live in Florida as well. And uh, it got down. This is a few years ago. I think it was 20, 2020, 2019, maybe I forget. Uh, but 
we got a we got a rain you know big cold front came through it rained it got cold while it was like still raining and everything was soaking wet and then temperatures just like plummeted and then all the water froze before it could drain off the roads and off the bridges and everything and there was like it, it was literally gridlock all the bridges were shut down nobody could go anywhere and there's tons of people here that live on uh, basically uh, barrier islands um just off the mainland and the and people have decided they're going to basically build on these glorified sandbars and people were stuck you know no no f- uh, food or anything could get in for like a, it wasn't too long it was like a couple of days but uh we're, we're not equipped for that down here in florida we don't have salt the ocean's full of it but we don't have rock salt on hand to start spreading on the roads Several watching what you guys went through uh, reminded me of the movie The Day After. Um, <laughs> watching the pictures and the video from Texas. Funny. <laughs> it was rough, man. You know, I'm, I, I went to college in Colorado, so I, I spent several years living in ice, icy conditions and winter weather conditions. And um, so I feel like I have some kind of benchmark on how to deal with it. But most of the people that live here, pretty much 90% of the people in Texas at the time, have absolutely zero experience driving on winter weather conditions and you know so that caused a lot of wrecks and then you know yeah. from my years in colorado and then i spent i spent a few years up in northern california as well and it was similar up in the mountains you know you, you when you start to see something like that blowing in the first thing you do is go to the grocery store so i did that when i when we shut the job site down early that day i stopped by the grocery store and spent like 300 dollars in groceries and got all stocked up and I'm a little bit of a prepper by nature. I got some water barrels in the garage that I keep, you know, refreshed once or twice a year. And uh, so I was like, all right, we're good. We don't have to go anywhere if anything happens. And nobody anticipated that storm being what it was. Uh, so it was like, all right, we're good. But for everybody else that wasn't a prepper or prepared for any kind of natural disaster, and that was a natural disaster, uh, you know, they had to figure out how to get out and get food, get calories, get clean water. In our neighborhood specifically, uh, a truck slid off the road and hit a fire hydrant and they had to shut the water main down. And there was not enough crews available to get out there and fix it. Plus it was too cold. So the water was down to our neighborhood the, the entire time. It, fortunately, wow. you know, me thinking ahead, we had sufficient water on hand that it wasn't a problem for us. And I was able to share some with the neighbors as well. You know, situations like that, like communications, if the the power didn't go out, go down in our neighborhood, I can't answer the question of why. But I know that there was neighborhoods that power did go out. You know, when the power goes down, the cell phone towers go down too. The cell phone t- towers go down, you have no communication. And uh, so what are you going to do if you have an emergency? Most people do not. And, uh, you know, so it, radio is a good tool that we could have had in that situation had power gone out. Uh, a few key neighbors that were really close within the neighborhood, if everybody had a radio, hey, this is what you do. When power goes out, you flip your radio on. Uh, now we're able to communicate with each other. Uh, hey, what do you guys got over there? I got some extra bread. Well, I got extra water. Let's meet up and trade. Even something as simple as, uh, you know, passing a radio out to the old lady that lives down the street who's a widow who you know can't take care of herself and it's just telling her, hey, if you have any troubles, give me a call on the radio. I'll be glad to help you. If there's no cell phone, no internet, she can't do that. She can't communicate. Just having a little handout radio, something like that, to take care of your, care of your elderly, 
elderly neighbors would be uh, uh, beneficial as well. I think um, I'm trying to think how to say this. I'll catch a lot of flack for this. I despise bowfang radios and i know in our group chats a lot of yes. times <laughs> he's somebody who get excited about it. Let's hear it i know in our group chats are, it is, it is. but i know in our chat sometimes you know it kind of sounds like i'm defending but but your case of having a, a, a a handout radio or a throwdown radio, that's a perfect place for a Bofang radio. That is a perfect place that, because you could spend a hundred bucks and get like five of those things, you know? And if you throw them away, okay, you know, who cares? You know, there's, there's a place for them. Uh, I just, I, I think my frustration with it is whether it's a Bofang or it's an XTS or 5100 or a VP series, whatever it is, is the weakest link is still the people. You could have every bit as a, a secure com- communication on an analog channel as you can a digital. Your weakest link is still your people. Your vulnerabilities is still your people. If you're using the same encryption key over and over and over and over and over again, it's still the people. You know, there, there's so many variables of that, but that is a perfect example where you could have a, th- we'll just call it a throwdown radio. You know, we're, we need a throw down radio do you do you want to spend a few hundred bucks oh yeah and thanks to you guys the price of 5100s are going up on ebay now you know everybody's trying to buy them so. uh, in our defense the price on everything's going up <laughs> <laughs> all right the eggs i've been buying are eight dollars a carton now they were four they literally just doubled in the last two weeks Bro, I bought eggs yesterday for two thirty nine. Believe oh, that. Wow. You what? I'm coming what to Texas. On down here. For some reason, they had eggs for two thirty. I don't know either. That's yeah. cheap. But, but don't worry, the price is about to spike. Everybody knows that this is temporary. They must have just found like a couple thousand eggs they forgot about or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> what kind of eggs are you buying? Are you buying like the great value? Oh, uh, we got Winco. I don't know if you know what Winco is. It's like a budget grocery store, but it's it's not like a, a cheap budget grocery store. It's like, you know, they the way they, they pass their savings on to you by they don't accept credit. They only accept debit and they don't have any baggers. So you have to bag your own groceries and like, you know, they 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 uh uh, cut down on the overhead as much as possible. Kind of like an Aldi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but they had them, and they had them for two thirty nine. I was like, well, shit! If they're two thirty nine, I'm buying a couple of them. That's the way to go. So you mentioned <laughs> rabbit trail. <laughs> I just yeah. lost my whole train of thought. I had a good, I had a good thought. We just gone now. Anyway, we were we were shit talking Balfangs, and then we got caught on eggs. <laughs> uh, who knows? What is your honest thoughts on the? Balfang and, and cheap analog radios. So I think we in the communications world, especially those of us who are, are helping people get started, need to be very careful of saying, of, of painting everything with a broad paintbrush. Um, there is a place for Balfang radios. And, and that, in my opinion, is beginners. That's where you start learning. That's where you start uh, growing your trade. It should present you to realize, hey, this is not the be all end all. There's more of it because to say that you shouldn't trust yourself to a Bofang radio. It's like saying you shouldn't own a PSA. You should only own Daniel's Defense or something like that. You know, at the end of the day, they'll both get the job done. It's just one is a little more well-built and capable than the other. And, you know, and it too, it goes back to what you're doing. If you're, if, you know, if you're just establishing emergency communications, maybe a Bofang is fine for you. I don't like them. Um, I fought the fight with public safety for years. Well, I can buy this. I, I remember having an argument with the fire chief. Well, I can afford to buy this radio. Well, 
if we were talking about a cheap air pack, SCBA, would Chinese air pack, would we be having this conversation? No, we wouldn't be. You just think that because the radio hears and talks that it works. That's not necessarily true. It, it doesn't work for every application, but there are applications that it does. And the one thing that I do like that Bofeng has probably, the, 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 they're probably funding the Chinese Communist Party now with it, is the accessories you can get for a Bofeng radio, a UV5R, the different types of batteries, the different types of charging capabilities, the you name it, it's it's there. And not many manufact radio manufacturers are doing that level of And they're dirt cheap. But, there's uh, a million the accessories for those things out there. Dirt cheap. Yeah, you know. Well, anything so, can be dirt cheap when you have 10,000 eight-year-olds that you pay nothing <laughs> to build your shit. You're not wrong. <laughs> that's part of that's part of my main problem with the Baofengs is I try to give as little money to China as physically possible. Yeah, that's my big thing. Well, then, you know, and that's a fair point, you know, but just, you know, we can't argue that we shouldn't trust a Chinese radio, you know, because there's some there, there's some people in our communities that use Chinese key loaders. Not just the key loaders, but look at Hytera. Hytera is a reputable, solid, yeah, hardcore, durable radio, and it's Chinese. Yeah. You know, so I look at it a little bit different. You know, what am, if whether it's a Bofang or whether it's a key loader or it's a, a cell phone or whatever, what information am I freely giving the Chinese? How do I know that the information that I'm putting in that device isn't somehow capable of being transferred to the Chinese government, you know, I mean, look at what we know, TikTok, what it's doing. Um, that That's, that's fact, you know, so. Right, and the Huawei phones, Huawei phones are, yeah. are still banned from this country for that reason, because they they know for sure that those chipsets are taking data and relaying it back over the network to China. But they do have their place. Uh, they don't have their place in my team. Uh, I, I do have a few for a throwdown radio just for the, I need to give one to my, my senior citizen that lives down the street or something like that. But they have their place. I just not with me. Yeah, I agree. And I, I tell people that who message me as well that, you know, yeah, the uh, basically exactly what you said is the Baofeng is a good entry level, very low barrier to entry um, but my, my main thing is I always tell someone is, okay, go ahead, get a Baofeng, but I want you to get a kit that comes with a programming cable. Download Chirp. It's free. Learn how to program the radio, not only from Chirp and from a computer. Learn how to front panel program it. Learn how to do all the features. It, it, for, it, for God's sakes, at least learn how to put the damn thing in low power. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I've met people who, who don't even know how to do that. Uh, I found a bug there recently. I noticed that if you have a channel programmed in the Baofeng and you want to switch that programmed channel to low power, you cannot do it. You have to go back to VFO mode, punch in that frequency, and then you can do low power. Oh, wow. we, we're we're doing a little bit of training out here, and a couple of guys had Baofengs. I was like, look, uh, emissions control, let's let's talk about it. Let me show you how to do this. Like, hand me your radio. Oh, it's on high power. Okay, let's bump it down to low power. I'll show you how to do it. And I did it, and then when I went back to the home screen, it still showed high power. I was like, wait a minute. I just switched it. Let me try it again. I did the same thing. It was like, let me try it again. It did the same thing. It was like, this isn't good. This is a. This means that if it's programmed, it's going to stay in whatever power level it's programmed in. Which, but when it, once I bumped over to VFO mode, it's free for all at that point. As far as programming is concerned, you can punch in your frequency, your offset, your tone, and change your power level. You don't have anything to worry about. I'm holding my Balfang right now, and I'm on a pre-programmed channel VTAC three, 
uh, which VHF TAC channel three. And if I press the the hashtag or pound button, it cycles through high, medium, and low power because this is the the UV five R TP really? triple power. It cycles through. If I press the PTT, it stays in low power. I wonder if these guys have an older uh, firmware then. Yeah, it could be, which you can update, I believe, with Chirp. Can you really? Can you update the firmware on that thing? I don't know that for sure. I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that. I think you can. Get edited out. <laughs> you don't have to edit it out. I think we're good. I mean, I've been behind Chirp a little bit. I mean, I've I've written a code plug for these radios, but I haven't had to uh, mess with do any firmware stuff because it's. I just get in there, I punch in what I need, and I, you know, write the radio, and I'm good to go. Interesting. I need to I need to look into this a little bit more then. But I think you guys, the conversations that you're having right here, you know, represent the blessings and the curses of all radios. You know, it's how do you manage these settings? How do you how do you manage field programmable versus things you don't need changed in the field? Um, and I think that's again goes back to the weakest links. You know, how many people on your team? are competent enough to know how to make those changes or correct those problems, you know, and that's, that's a challenge on any radio. Uh, one of the things that I do like about cheap radios, especially dual band is the dual band feature. You can, you know, you mentioned earlier, civil, I think it was civil that mentioned about, Hey, I, I really would like a way to have my battlefield leaders to be able to communicate with a talk and a, and a, a a, a very secure way, or not necessarily secure, but a way that makes it harder for people to intercept is to uh, use crossband duplex mode in communicating, meaning that maybe your battlefield commanders transmit on UHF, but your talk transmits on VHF. And Bofangs and radios like that will allow you to set up a channel that has a split transmit receive in the same radio. And that's a really cool uh radio for making it more difficult on the signals intelligence side of of interception yeah that is that is the nice part about being able to do that across a, a, a couple hundred megahertz because i mean at least on the you know my experience with the with the xts radios is you can do a split transmit and receive but you're restricted to the to the one band of operations radio you have. That's correct. And at VHF, you know, it's not as critical at UHF and even less critical at 800, 700, 800. But at VHF, your antennas don't have a very broad tuning window uh, for them to be very efficient. Uh, the lower in frequency you go, the more narrow that window is. And you end up, if, if you're going to operate in 144 today and 158 tomorrow, you really need two antennas to be efficient. Now, if you're wanting to get the maximum reach out of it, but if you're doing low power and I just want to talk across the street, it's probably not going to matter. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, uh, we did a live with uh, an Instagram live the other night with a uh, resilient civilian. I got a little SWR meter and I was checking uh, the FRS frequencies on the SWR meter just kind of as a demo. What I noticed was it was getting like 3.14 SWR. I was like, wait a minute, that's not good. Out. Uh, then I looked at, I pulled the antenna off the radio and looked at it, and the edge of the antenna was 470 megahertz. FRS frequency is in the 460s. Uh, so, you know, it's on the edge of that antenna. Therefore, you know, I'm, I'm using an antenna that's designed for ham radio. It's not designed for the FRS band. Naturally, you know, I, I'm at the edge of its resonance. 
I'm at the far edge of his residence and uh, it's getting a bad SWR. So it's like, okay, well, I, good to know that if I want to efficiently use FRS on this radio, then I need a, an alternate antenna that's capable of uh, resonating better on the 460s and 470 is not going to be the edge of the band or 470 is not going to be the edge of the resonance yeah. there. Yeah. I, I think you see that this, that goes back into what we're talking about that so many people don't understand and it encourages me to see you guys experimenting with and learning these things uh, because you know so many people don't want to take the time to it how many people have you seen that are operating in vhf industrial business spectrum 150 we'll say 155 megahertz and they've bought the abris tape measure antenna that they're running but what they're not looking at is more often than not those antennas are tuned for the ham bands for 144 to 148 so if your SWR is high enough, you're actually going to cause, eventually cause damage to the uh, amplifier inside your handheld radio. And that's not doing anybody any good. Yeah. And I, that's what I was going to, um, what I was going to say real quick is uh, in case anybody hasn't listened to previous um, episodes with us, SWR stands for standing wave ratio. And I think Sybil said uh, his antenna had what a 3.4. Uh, SWR at this frequency, uh, a, a good rule of thumb is you want your SWR to be less than two because an SWR of 2.0 is means that 50% of your radiated power is going to be bouncing uh, or reflected back into your radio and not make it out of the antenna. I've heard it explained like this. Uh, for every one unit of power that's created, one unit of power is being emitted from the antenna. Uh, so therefore, your ratio is a one to one. Uh, one generated, one. Yeah, that would be a perfect SWR. Right. And, and one to one yeah. is is yeah. One to one is perfect. The kind of the rule of thumb that I learned from the the guys who taught me radio is a two to one as far out of balance as you want to go. Anything above two to one. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was saying basically. Yeah. You want to stay below two because, like I said, any at two point oh, fifty percent of your power is reflected back into the radio, and if you go up to th to three, now you're talking about um, you know two thirds of the power being reflected back into your radio, and it, yeah, like uh, Matt said, at some point something's going to give out, especially on cheaper radios that aren't engineered as well. Yeah, and you know, antennas, there's enough cheap antennas out there. Nagoya makes a bunch of them. So does Diamond and Smiley. For $30, you can go buy a handful of antennas that are tuned uh, just slightly different, but in the same band. And then you've got a handful of antennas that can cover uh, a range of operations. It's not something yeah. that's out of uh, the question or unaccessible. No, and you... No, I was going to tell you, you know, I posted a, a picture not too long ago of a whole bunch of TK-190s I was had been tuning and aligning, and um, they're the Kenwood's commercial. They don't make them anymore, but it was a VHF low band, and it low band, it's very critical, and so I ended up buying a bunch of different antennas for several different frequencies I wanted to use, but I was going to say, if you buy the antennas, make sure you mark them somehow, because if you forget which antenna is which, it's... You, you know, you, you got to go back through the process. So 
uh, mark them somehow with what the center frequency that it's tuned for to give you an idea and a reference. Yeah, that's a really good idea, especially once you start getting uh, a handful or more radios laying around. You know, while we're on this topic, I got a question for you, Matt. What would you tell somebody who's looking into getting into comms as a beginner? I would tell somebody who's looking into comms as a beginner to start exploring ham radio. Uh, even if you don't take the test and get your license, uh, there's tons of resources out there for helping you study to take your test and um, it, it kind of helps you understand the fundamentals of RF technology and in, and really and truly it's your technician class license is geared for the kind of stuff that we're talking about tonight the handheld radios and, and learn what's out there uh, what what is what the capabilities are and again even if you don't take your test um, Take some of those training. ARRL.org has some great training resources. QRZ.com has some great training resources. Um, there, there's a lot of resources that are out there for you that, that can be used to, to, to get that. And then, um, you know, I, I think about what, what you guys are putting out, um, uh, Resilient Civilian, Wyoming Survival, and I, I know I'm forgetting some names that are, that are out there, but there's some good quality stuff that, that while we do look at DSD and when we do look at digital communications, we're still putting out some basic fundamentals. And, and I think, you know, learning those skills are, are, is, is absolutely critical. Uh, don't be overwhelmed. And uh, be careful who you listen to. Um, anybody could get on the YouTube, Instagram, whatever, and, and I'm an expert. Um, and I can come across and act and talk like I'm an expert, but am I really? Yeah, um, and you know, to I, I, I Wyoming Survival's say, point, shit gets worked out in the field. So, you know, if, if you're going to go learn anything from anybody, go test it for yourself. Don't just take their word for it. Absolutely. And that's a key point, Sybil. That's a key point. Get out and try it. You know, don't don't be the guy that buys the whatever radio you buy, the high end, the low end, the mid mid range. Don't be the guy that buys the radio and says, "All right, I'm gonna go lock it over here in my Faraday box," and you never use it. And then when it does go south, you don't even have a clue how to turn the radio on. Uh, that's that's so critical. It's experiment, and I think that's one of the things I enjoy about ham radios. It 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 that's it offers that and encourages it. Oh, me too, man. I love going out and doing tests. Today I did a post. Uh, I tested TMS on these little BTEC DMRs that I got. Mostly, I'm, I'm, I've been, I'm, I'm continuing tests on the BTEC because that's what we use in our little training group here. I've got some uh, EFJs here that I'm lining up to test. I just haven't got around to it yet. Uh, for the sake of priority, I'm testing these BTECs. You know, I stuck one with a Nagoya 771 antenna, which is going to receive a little bit better on my workbench in my garage. Nothing special, no special conditions, uh, but I turned it on and I took the other radio, the other BTEC I have with me. Uh, I was going to fill up some water jugs and I just drove around the neighborhood and stopped at different intersections. Uh, we've got some hills in our neighborhood. We got lots of big oak trees in our neighborhood and we've got lots of houses. So I'm transmitting, uh, you know, through an obstructed signal path and um, I don't have the best uh, ground wave conditions out here. Uh, so I kept it on, I, I'd go to a different locations around the neighborhood and I'd send a, a TMS message on low power. And then I'd send a TMS message on high power. I go to the next point, repeat the process, go to the next point, repeat the process. And then I got back home and I checked it. All right, which ones made it through, which ones didn't. And it kind of gives me a benchmark of, uh, this is what's going to come through on high power. This is what's going to come through on low power. You know what? I mean, as simple of a test as that was, it made my trip to the water station 10 minutes longer than it should have been. 
It was a quick, easy, get out there and test it kind of scenario. And I have fun doing it. And I'm eager to know what the outcome is. By the time I get home, when I pick up my radio and look at it, which messages came through? I'm like excited to see which ones did and which ones didn't. It's the kind of stuff. It's like you, if, you don't need to just buy a radio and lock it in your safe and think you're going to be all good because you have a radio. You need to know the limitations of it, especially where you live, where you work, where you spend your time. Um, that's kind of what I was getting at this afternoon when I made that post. But go have fun with this stuff. I actually enjoy doing it. I know, Tito, you're doing a lot of radio tests. You have fun doing it. And Matt, you made uh, your DSD posts, uh, demodulating a digital radio. Um, I know you have fun doing that stuff, too. So I'm having a ton of fun doing that right now. I enjoy it. Um, and, you know, DSD, I actually stumbled up on it uh, by accident. We were chasing some interference at uh, some of our some of our sites, and that's actually how I got to to learn more about DSD and the fact that it'll decode so many different demo, digital modulations. That's that's a cheap tool, and it uses that thirty dollar RTL SDR device. I mean, that's that's e- I love doing that. I love I love getting it out there. Yeah, man, and. Plus, it shows you a little bit of the vulnerabilities that exist for people who are using digital radio. Um, you know, what what got you into our chat, watching your uh, video of running SDR Sharp with the SD Plus on it, uh, you were capturing messages and it was showing, you know, talk group ID, radio ID. Actually, tell us a little bit more about that, what you were doing with that test. Uh, dive into that, a little, break down what you were doing there. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, um, watching, um, I'm trying to think how to say this. So, there's a big push on running everything encrypted um, and, and we need to be very careful and to, to fall into the trap that I'm running AES 256 so I'm good and that's not always the case because you you can run AES 256 on P25 DMR you can run it on next edge whatever if the radio is capable of, of handling an, an AES 256 uh, encryption module you can run that and so I want to make I wanted to make sure that people understand hey look it's good that you're wanting secure comms but recognize you're you're not necessarily good you're still giving up a fair amount of information so most of your digital modulations are still going to pass the radio ID the talk group ID in the clear dmr digital mobile radio is a standard believe it or not dmr was uh, uh, implemented by the european telecommunication standards institute i think i'm saying that right etsi Uh, dmr tier 2 is the standard and all dmr systems are based on that tier 2 standard now everybody adds their own little flavor to it things like that but at the end of the day in DMR, not only is your radio ID and talk group ID available, your text message, your short message data is transmitted in the clear. And that was one of the things that I was showing on the on the video for DSD Plus was, hey, here's the radio. I programmed it. The channel I'm running is encrypted. It's using, uh, I think, I, I can't remember now, but it was just the built-in encryption key on the radio. And the text message was broadcast straight into the clear. Now, there are things that we can do to secure that message, but the main thing was is don't fall into the trap that just because I'm encrypted that I'm good. Yeah, and I even, I've made a post about that um, recently where I think, you know, it's pretty, it was kind of cheesy almost even, but I was basically telling people to go pick up the uh, the U.S. Marine Corps uh, Radio Operators Handbook, and uh, a section in that book covers um, communication security, and uh communication security uh emissions control there's a whole chapter on all that kind of stuff and then the part that talks about cryptography is 
Uh, cryptography is actually the radio operator's third layer of defense. It's not the first. Essentially, you know, one of the things that I, I post, posted a few things about it, but this gets a little complex, but uh, we use a Raspberry Pi to generate our cryptography uh, because it has a random hardware ring generator in it and um, has the ability to generate as close to true random as we really can get without a bunch of 10-sided dice or whatever it is that you run for one-time pads. But um, having random call signs, tactical call signs, having random secure keys that you're uh, using a brevity matrix that, you know, even if somebody decrypts your encryption key, they still got to figure out what it is that you that you said, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different layers to it, and it, just because you're using one doesn't mean you're good. Yeah, and that's where I was kind of going. You know, the the radio operator's handbook talks about how cryptography and 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 encrypting the actual data is the third layer because, like you just said, it is a layered approach. And we've talked about it before on the podcast where how it, you know every step you take, every layer you implement is a. Uh, I don't think it's aired yet. We talked about this with with C5, um, and every layer that you add is is just another um, point that makes your you know your potential adversary have to work harder uh, for that information, and which which gives you time. Absolutely. Think about it like this. You know, suppose you accept as your team, we're going to use DMR for our team comms, and we're going to do. Uh, digital encrypted everything and we know that our text data is being broadcast in this clear if the only thing that comes out is charlie 2 alpha delta my uh, delta 8 bravo and then some alphanumeric codes what have you really told anybody nothing the only thing you've given up is your rf footprint for a short burst um good a good resource to talk about that that layer of security uh google number station uh Today, there's still broadcasts that go on that are just random numbers being broadcast by militaries all over the world that may or may not have messages, but it's just a string of numbers, numbers and letters, for lack of better words. You may accept that. That's up to your group. There's also, isn't there that, like, uh, the Russian number stations, too? They're doing the same thing. There's that one that's been running for, like, 60 years. And it may or may not be, but it's 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 crypto. You know, it's it may just be trash. It may be something. We don't know. There's people who have dedicated their entire lives to trying to figure out that like Russian, you know, that that shortwave, you know, number, you know, transmission. The the thing about crypto is, you know, you got several different types. You got your ARC4, uh, you got your AES-256. Uh, what else is out there? Um, I don't follow the, the cryptology world too closely, but I know there's several different types of encryption out there. There are. Uh, ARC4, which is also compliant with Motorola's ADP. Uh, you've got DES OFB, which is still widely used today, AES-256. Um, and that's just what you see mostly in two-way radios. But when you start looking at uh, uh, other devices, other like paranoia text encryption apps, uh, there's all kinds of encryption schemes that can be used blowfish and I forget what they all are, but in the two way radio world, there's that's, that's the most of them. There used to be uh, DVP digital voice protocol and DVP XL. I think we were chatting about that the other day. Um, it was used in the analog world, uh, in wideband 
and was horrible. It was, I mean, at first time, I guess it was, it was a good thing, but it, it was horrible. Um, and then I think that's about it that's available in the civilian market. When you start getting up to DOD level and places like that, there's a couple of others, but that's, that's it right now. So switching gears real quick, I wanted to circle back. Uh, you mentioned your book earlier, frozen signals, uh, what can you tell us about your book? Uh, can you give us a little summary about it? Uh, tell us a little bit about what your, your book is about yeah. and what your intentions were with writing that and, and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my inspiration for that book was the Partisan Operator Journals by John Jacob Smith. If you've not read that book, it's a great book. But for me, the foundation of it was, as I mentioned earlier, there's so many more things that can take us take our communications down than just an EMP or just a nuclear attack. You know, as I say it like it's not really a big thing, but we tend to look at that. And when we're trying to push emergency communications, we're pushing it from that EMP perspective where it gets glass eyed because they're like, well, that's never going to happen, whatever. Uh, So I looked at my area and said, you know, what scares us is an ice storm. And the foundation of a book is a family that had taken steps to be prepared and um, with their self-worth at home or self-preparedness at home and he had developed uh, the key the key uh, character in the book jack he developed a core group of friends and uh, had taught them and worked with them and building redundant and resilient communications and when the ice storm came along the uh, tower site uh, providing their county's communications went offline and the county couldn't get to it because the ice storm was on top of a mountain just a lot of different things so jack and his team hiked to the top of the mountain to start restoring communications and uh, sent some people to eoc there's a little bit of encrypted communications in there there's a little bit of different technologies in there Uh, but it's basically a guide on how to get set up for emergency communications with a storyline now the cool thing is is the whole story as it as it as it reads never happened but every component in the story happened at some point in my career and in my life just at different times and we just stacked them all together uh, the teammate is based loosely around what i affectionately call the honey badgers it was the team of of amazing communications professionals i worked with <clears throat> for the state of south carolina with the helicopter aquatic rescue team we literally trained to go into disaster areas uh, and get hoisted in from the helicopter to set up communications uh, between the disaster area the locals and the uh, regional communication centers and so the book kind of ties those guys in to doing a, the, what we did but in a fictional way and if you read it it'll kind of help you uh, get started in your emergency communications path as well that's awesome man so it's kind of a for lack of better terms a kind of a a, a real world example scenario of things that could happen and kind of spur you on to yep. think a little bit on your toes about uh, okay, here's some problems. How do I mitigate those problems? Absolutely it is. And I guess I should have said, I don't remember if you did or I did. The book's titled Frozen Signals. Uh, the author's name is uh, Merlin Jacks. It's obviously a pen name. Um, uh, Merlin and Jack have a meaning. And the uh, 
it's it's a it was fun i enjoyed writing it i could not believe how long it took to write the book and publish it but it was great i i, I hope people who read it and enjoy it half as much as i enjoyed writing it that's awesome man so where can you find this book uh, it's on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle or paperback. Uh, and again, the title is Frozen Signals by Marilyn Jacks. Right on, man. Good deal. Yeah. So if uh, if you guys are interested, go check out the book. I definitely uh, I'm going to order a copy as soon as this podcast is over and I'm going to read it just because. Yeah, I'm going to order a copy, too. It sounds like a cool story. No, I tried to. I was going to say I, <laughs> uh, I was talking earlier about my friends who mentored me into uh talking in more simple terms and i remember uh ike brissy a, a great mentor of mine he said when you tell a story tell it like a child's story it was a dark and stormy night and so <laughs> that's how i tried to write the book you know what's uh you know what's interesting about that is you ever listen to sean ryan podcast i do not i'll have to look him up you should look him up. All right. So he's a retired Navy SEAL and he gets a bunch of uh, SOF guys on there and, you know, some some other non-SOF guys on there. But he's essentially he's telling war stories. Um, you know, it's all centered around their careers in Afghanistan and Iraq and um, kind of based in the SOF community. And it's very, very fascinating stuff. But people like a good story. And, you know, a story gives context. A story uh, captures people's imaginations. And so to, to write something like that, even though it's fictional, uh, but it's based in reality, uh, especially the, the possibilities of something that could happen in reality. Uh, that's a great learning tool, man. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you put some stuff like that out. That's awesome. To... So, Matthew, uh, I got another question for you. Uh, this was on my notes list. Uh, you got some uh, signals intelligence, signet, 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 signet experience. Uh, obviously, we talked about your uh, <laughs> we talked about uh, DSD plus and what you're doing with uh, demodulating uh, DMR. Uh, but what can you tell us about SIGINT capabilities that exist in the private sector and in the public sector. So SIGINT is, you know, you mentioned this signals intelligence, and I'm not going to try to repeat it five times fast like you did because I will fail at that. But uh, it, it, there's a ton of resources that are out there. We mentioned earlier DSD Plus with uh, SDR Sharp uh, and uh, the RTL SDR dongles. There's, I mean, your cheapest scanners can give you a lot of intelligence uh, that are out there. Handheld scanners, knowing uh, what's out there. Radioreference.com. Uh, there's a uh, an open source publication called the NIFOG, the National Interoperability Field Operations Guide. It's got a ton of channels that you can look into. Just, I, I remember growing up, my grandparents had a, a scanner on 24/7, listening to fire EMS police uh, in their area, and and it was on all the time. And so, believe it or not, that's actually a little bit of signals intelligence, just being aware of what's around in your area of operation. Um, every ham operator has some level of SIGIN experience because I think Tito, I don't know if it's Tito or Civil, one of you were talking about you had done a fox hunt, uh, set up a beacon not too long ago and was just driving around and seeing where uh, you could hear the signal from so that's another form of signals intelligence uh, you know direction finding um, 
then the other thing that's available to you is to take some of these tools and go to uh, an area, go to a downtown area, even if you live in a small town, and scan the FRS, GMRS, MERS, business industrial frequencies and see what's out there, see what's being even been used, and learn what sounds, what looks like. Because uh, Wyoming Survival talked about in your last podcast that it's not as easy as everybody thinks it is. And it's not because it's a skill set. So learning what what belongs and what doesn't belong. Oh, uh, if you um, if you watch YouTube, there's a, a YouTube personality, Skinny Merit, Skinny Medic. Uh, Skinny's a great friend, and he and I were playing around with some radios and we're scanning the FRS channels near uh, a downtown area, and uh, we heard a female voice come on the radio, and, and we, we don't know who she called, but she said, "We're out." I'll never forget this. She said, "We're out of queso." I say again, "We're out of queso." And that struck me, <laughs> you know, because I thought, you know, this was just a Mexican restaurant, I assume, or somebody that served queso dip. But what kind of code could that have been? You know, what 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 cipher could that have been? So, you know, learning those things. Um, the DSD Plus is a great tool. Uh, but what I like to do is take a scan, that handheld scanner, uh, and scan those common frequency bands. And when something stops and catches my attention, I'll, I'll hit the pause button or write the frequency down and move over. If I hear a digital signal, I'll transfer that frequency into my uh, SDR Sharp software and start looking at it and saying, okay, what am I decoding? What's out there? Um, uh, there's a great resource, a great movie about. Um, uh, what was in the uh, not movie it was a docu-series let's see if I, I had it wrote down here it's on netflix it was about i know i wrote this down uh it was about um stingray the stingray device that the the government's used to, the federal government used to have uh that was capable of simu emulating a cell phone and um it was something like Web of Lies. Uh, oh, here it is. Well, uh, social, Netflix's Social Dilemma is a good one. And then Web of Make Believe, Death Lies and the Internet, Stingray Part 1. That one's a great one. Uh, I would challenge everybody to watch that video. It's real world. It's not, uh, it's not fiction. It really happened. There's case law with it now. Um, that's out there. Uh, yeah, you know... Um when it comes to the Stingray, there was a podcast called uh, Stuff You Should Know out of, uh, uh, I think, UGA or NYU. Anyway, there's a there's a podcast called Stuff You Should Know. They had a whole episode uh, about the Stingray. And the episode refers to other podcasts that are out there. It was kind of a collaborative effort. But they, they tell the whole story about how the Stingray was discovered. So there was a gentleman in California who was uh, defrauding uh, people's credit cards and, and basically stealing money and stuff like that. He, he was a, kind of a renegade that left society and lived in the woods, and he was tech-savvy enough to figure out how to uh, commit massive credit card fraud, and they, they caught on to him. Uh, so they, arrest, they, they caught up to him, they arrested him, and he spent endless amount of hours combing through court documents and public information and, and found references to this stuff and found out that this technology existed. And then uh, he represented himself in court and and brought it up. And the government had no choice, but because it's in court, they had to acknowledge it. Yeah, this thing ex exists. And long story short, kind of like a Catch Me If You Can, that movie you know with Leonardo DiCaprio where he is a fraudulent airline pilot. 
the FBI ended up hiring this guy after the, the case was over and d- dismissing charges um, to kind of, you know, explain how did you guys, how did you catch this? What did you do to do? To, to evade us for so long that that you had it, it's a good non-fictional SIGINT sure story about you know a criminal a villain out there and the thing the, the thing to remember is that's like 2007 2008 and between that time frame and now with the technology capabilities and the availabilities you, you know that there's a lot out there um, you know we we have no clue the Chinese balloon that if, if you're from South Carolina, this is funny as crap that the balloon was shot down just off the coast of Myrtle Beach. That's the most Myrtle Beach thing that's ever happened, you know. Um, but the, the, we, we have no idea what signals intelligence that balloon was collecting. No idea. You know, you have no, it's, it's out there. The capabilities are endless. If, if what I can do with a $30 SDR receiver, knowing those capabilities, you guys have seen the videos, we've talked about it. What could I do with a couple of million dollars in technology? Yeah, what kind of capabilities do these nation states have if this open source software exists? What does DARPA have that we don't know about? You know, not not just DARPA, but any any nation state out there in the world. You know, especially China, they're known for ripping off technology, and we're known for giving it to them. So you know, it's. Um, I think there's plenty of cases that are out there for SIGINT that um, you look at. Um, you know, look at the history of the U.S. I mean, that's how we turned the tide of World War II was we cracked Japan's encryption code identifying that Operation AF was actually Midway Island. Uh, so, you know, there's there's plenty of cases. The uh, Enigma machine that was uh, captured during a, a submarine. That's right. The, the British. Re- yeah. And, and I, I forget all the details yep. of that. But, yeah, they, they ended up they, they captured the Enigma machine. And at the same time, simultaneously, there was a British effort to decode the Enigma signals. And they were able to break through uh, enough of the encryption to where they could figure out key pieces of the uh, transmissions. Uh, yep. But, you know, what's interesting about that, um, they both the U.S. and the British – they didn't want to reveal to the Germans that they had cracked the encryption. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't act on the intel that they had ga- gathered. So they had to be very selective about what, what kind of uh, what kind of reaction do we have here? Uh, because we, we need to be able to decode this. Otherwise, they're going to tra- change their crypto and we're not going to be able to hear it again. That's correct. So, you know, a moral of the story is, you know, you, even though you're using encryption, you don't know what's being intercepted and what's not. You know, I got a few posts out there that talks about SOPs. Uh, even if you're using encryptions, you still need to be using brevity code. Uh, you still need to be using uh, a call sign. Yes. Uh, you should never use actual grid coordinates or anything like that over radio, even under crypto. You know, there's, there's SOPs that you need to implement that safeguard all of your information. And this it's it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, if you just if you're just starting out with your signals intelligence, um, uh, I recommend just a cheap uh, a scan, handheld scanner that can scan analog signals. There's still a lot of analog stuff that's out there. It would really surprise you. And and it's if you live near a, a metro area, that's the that's the best place to go is to go listen to the FRS, GMRS, MERS, things like that because. FRS is legal to use for business purposes for using actual FRS radios. So lots and lots of restaurants, lots of lots of places use those things. 
Uh, so you can you can start learning what belongs and what doesn't belong, and that's that's what that's what we do. Now, speaking of FRS and business use, I'm curious to know uh, what kind of experience do you have with hand mobile radio LMR uh, outside of uh, public safety use? So when I retired in December, I went to work for a company and uh, managed as a multi-state radio system, Next Edge. We uh, got a lot. I'm trying to think how to explain it. It's um, LMR is pretty much the same whether you're doing public safety or you're doing uh, business industrial. It just depends on uh, the systems you're using, whether you're using trunk, conventional, uh, the modes you're using. Because P25 is not exclusive to bit, to government. Um, there are some business users that use them, uh, not many because it's so expensive. Uh, more often than not, you're seeing analog or DMR, and then you're seeing an in- increase in um, next in NXDN and Next Edge systems as well. The the Next Edge systems, especially the six and a quarter uh, systems, just have so much better coverage than anything else that's out there. They 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 really perform, and uh, uh, we've got. Uh, numerous conventional systems that have helped put up and helped maintain over the years that are in the LMR business band as well. Uh, there are also, if you um, if you and your group, you're looking for frequencies and you're like, man, I'm just not sure if somebody owns a business, uh, an LLC or something like that, you can apply for uh, frequencies in the business industrial pool and legally have those frequencies and operate on them um so there's lots of capabilities out there that in lots of places you can be yeah that's really cool i've uh i've heard like what you said that uh that next edge uh like six and a half or six six and a quarter kilohertz i've heard that stuff just has for whatever reason it just goes and goes it does, and the biggest reason is the radios, the the filtering the radio needs to achieve six and a quarter bandwidth. It just cuts out so much of the noise, and on the receivers, it cuts out so much of the noise and the interference that it's more of the pure signal that gets through. And in my testing and in trials, if you compare as close to apples and apples as you can get, uh, a P25 signal, which is a 12 and a half kilohertz DMR, uh, in, in my testing, DMR went out of range first, followed by P25, followed by six and a quarter next in. Next in. Um, and the reason DMR does it is because it's TDMA. The yeah. further away from the time source it gets, the harder trouble it the more trouble it has keeping that time sync in place. Yeah, when you lose that time sync, you lose everything. Whereas, you know, like the the P25 and the Next Edge is like a, you know, a, a continuous carrier. It is. It's FDMA, Frequency Division Multiple Access. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Have you messed with SDR trunk at all? I have not. Tito, t- so funny story about Tito. Um, I am so, Tito. Oh, sorry, my bad. Funny story about you. <laughs> <laughs> my bad. <laughs> so funny story about you. Um, when I posted the DSD Plus and we spent all afternoon chatting out back, I had no clue you were the guy on this podcast. I'd been listening to the podcast for a couple of days. and uh, I Oh, just, really? Yeah, no, I didn't have a clue. I was just like, man, this guy's, hey, here's somebody who needs some help. Let me help this guy out. And <laughs> and then I'm riding down the road and I'm listening to the podcast. Yeah, I was uh, at Tactical Comms, spent all afternoon with me. like, no freaking way. I was, that, that, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate that help, dude. You uh, you helping me out trying to get um, 
I, like I told you, I've this uh, ever since I got my RTL SDR, and then I got SDR Sharp, I got SDR Plus Plus, um, and then I grew into the the you know the digital side of things. I was like, okay, I got to use SDR Sharp. I'm gonna get all the plugins, and I had it all running. It was all working, and then you know, like a month ago now, a few weeks ago, I I tried. I was like, all right, I'm gonna use DSD Plus to and SDR Sharp to you know make some content for Instagram and it just just wasn't working. I didn't change anything. Hardware, none of the hardware changed, none of the software changed. It just wouldn't work except for my laptop updated to Windows 11 and that's my conclusion because I did every other I went through everything a dozen times and it just wouldn't run, but I got my Panasonic FCM1 running I uh running Windows 10 Pro. And I just, you know, got a flash drive because this is an air-gapped machine. I got a flash drive. I literally took my SDR Sharp with the plugins from the from this laptop that I'm using right now. You know, flash drive, transferred it, the whole folder and everything. Nothing changed. Transferred it to the FCM1, and it runs. That's all. <laughs> so well, so it's above you- my pay grade right there. But I think it's just uh, Windows 11 is just broke a lot of things. Yeah, you know, I... My uh, my computer upgraded itself to Windows 11 without me telling it to. I'm not sure what I did with Windows 10 when I upgraded to Windows 10. But unfortunately, Windows 11, man, it broke a lot of software. Uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah, the uh, the PC um, PC configure, the, the programming software for the EF Johnsons, um, it PC configure will run on on my on my now windows 11 laptop but it won't run right if that makes sense it's it's very choppy things don't yeah i try to click on a field and it doesn't work i try running it in compatibility mode still doesn't work pc issue which is the feature upgrader for the ef johnson's won't run it will not open i run it and i try to force it to run in compatibility mode it just gives me error after error it won't run but I transferred all the all those same software to the FC, the Panasonic FCM one, you know, and just everything runs on on the Windows 10 Pro. So it has no issues on that side of things. But the I can just figure it's it's an operating system issue. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So that that's an, that brings up an interesting question. Uh, Matthew, you got any experience with these EFJ 5100s or uh, Kenwood products in general? Yeah. Uh, so. When, and I, I get the models messed up, but back uh, 2007, 2008, the HC I was working for, I mean, it might have been a little bit later because the recession in 2008 hit and really just just hammered us. And so we were we were needing some more radios for our P25 trunk system. And uh, I, I can't remember if it was the 5100 or the 51ES or 51SL. I, I don't remember. The model numbers kind of get fuzzy. But we started looking at them and we we're like, man, this, <clears throat> this radio is really cool. It, it uses the same battery as the XTS 5000. It, you know, it's got the same accessory jack. Its program is a little bit different, but it was literally half the cost. And uh, so we started playing with those and using them, and, and we started buying them. Uh, we started buying the Johnson Mobiles, but then uh, Johnson uh, took a, a really uh, had a really bad turn, a bad run of radios, and we ended up uh, buying the Kenwood NX 54 and 5900 series radios, and that was really where I got to know Kenwood. 
I was very familiar with the the legacy 690, 790, 890 radios um, because we had several counties around us that used them. And uh, but the the digital radios was that was my first experience. And then uh, we started learning about Next Edge, and that opened the door for me to uh, start learning about the Next Edge systems and start maintaining Next Edge sites and servicing those equipment. Uh, and then now, you know, Kenwood bought EF Johnson, and everything is branded Kenwood now. And uh, so they've got the VP series radio, which I just this week got my demo VP8000 to play with, and I'm learning it. And that is a that is a sweet radio, let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's talk about that because yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that that is that is the. <laughs> the holy grail it's not dual it's all banned isn't it yeah it's all banned the vp so what, it, it does VHF, vhf uhf 7800 does yep. it do 900 it does not do 900 it does vhf okay. uhf 7 and 800 dmr is not out yet it's supposed to be coming out june july it's a software upgrade and then the next year to two years yeah, the next year to two years, it's going to also include Next Edge in the radio as a software upgrade as well. Okay, I got another question for you. Uh, is is so the VP eight thousand? It's coming out. We we've all heard about its capabilities. Uh, we just talked on them just now. Uh, what is a radio like that going to do to the tactical world, especially you know military applications, police application? Uh, do you think that? I think in the go ahead. I think in the public safety world, especially the public safety world, this radio is a game changer um, because depending on where you are in the country depends on what your communication systems you have. I mean, you kind of talked about areas in your community that I, I know in mine, there's there's uh, one county overruns uh, a DMR IP site connect system and they still run an analog. Then the county below me runs a P25800 system. Uh, the county, I mean, you know, there's one radio and, and when you're looking at p25 radios p25 radios commercially new are expensive and this one radio is less than the cost less than the cost of several reputable single band p25 radios and has all of these other features so you literally could program I literally could take that one radio and be interoperable with every single person around me, every single agency around me with one radio. That is a game changer in the public safety world. In the tactical world, having the ability to have that much of a frequency range, to have that much capability, that's a game changer, but it's an expensive game changer. You might have to sell your boat soon. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yo, um, what is... Uh, do you know what the price point on on one of those is looking like? Well, so because I work for a dealer, I can't I can't really discuss the pricing points now. Um, but I can okay. tell you that it's it's about the cost of one single band radio and several other manufacturers. Wow. Okay, that's what I was I was hearing because uh, uh, Anarcho Bacon got me. I, I asked him about it because he's a he's a uh, Kenwood EF Johnson dealer and. Um, I, I will. I also won't disclose the the quote he gave me because just because of the circumstances and everything. But I was very surprised at the price point, considering there are less capable radios going for more money. More. Yeah, yeah. And is it also true? Um, I heard that the at least what we've talked about in the group chat, uh, the radio will support two digital standards and analog in the same code plug, or will it do more than that? 
So it'll do more than that. The VP8000 will do more than that. So when we were talking oh. about the, the two digital standards, we were talking about the NX5000 line, the NX5200, 5300, 5400. It will support DMR, Next Edge, and P25, but it will only do two at a time in the same code plug. Uh, so if you wanted to write a code plug that was DMR and P25, it'll do that, and then come back and change it and make it DMR and Next Edge, it would do that. It will only do two at a time. The VP8000, once those, once DMR and Next Edge is released and you can get it upgraded in, into the radio, it will do all of them at, in the same code plug. It'll do everything and analog. That is and analog. That is something else. I'm talking to him about the kitchen sink. <laughs> what kind of spillover do you think LMR is going to have into the civilian world? Uh, specifically the ham radio, but, you know, not specifically the ham radio. You know, how how is this kind of technology that's coming out? You know, it's, it's very versatile, very adaptable. Uh, it's very multiple, multi, multifaceted. How is that going to impact the ham radio market? Do you, do you think that there will be much of an impact? Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, the ham radio market and the LMR world kind of go out and back with each other over the years. If, you, if A lot of people don't realize it, but uh, automatic vehicle location services actually started with ham radio, uh, with ham radio doing packet uh, locating, what's now known as APRS. So you see technologies kind of go out and back between the two. Uh, obviously, when commercial... Uh, commercially available equipment such as like the XTS is, you know, uh, 15 years ago, we couldn't afford to buy XTS 5000s on the used market because uh, they just wasn't readily available. But now you're buying them for 150 200 $250, whatever you're buying them for. Um, so I think you'll see the same thing in the ham radio world. I also think you're going to see ham radio manufacturers start to uh, push out more features uh, and more uh, robust capabilities with not just dual band, but you're starting to see more tri-band radios. Uh, me personally, if if a, if a ham radio manufacturer is listening to this podcast, make me a 220 DMR radio. That yeah. uh, the, the 220 band is a, is an awesome, amazing band. Make me a 220. I, I would also radio. love to see that. Assuming I don't know, would, would the FCC allow that? Would be like cool. That? Yeah, I don't think it's a legal issue. It's just there's there's not a yeah. market for it. But they, they just don't know that there actually is a market for it because that would be awesome. Because 220 gives you, uh, you know, that really nice in in between. Uh, performance of VHF and UHF, so it's it is a nice middle ground. So, so here's another question for you: uh, talking about FCC, what they allow, don't allow. Uh, th this is this is kind of a hot button issue, especially in the MCOM TATCOM world, because we are definitely known to bend the rules and exploit loopholes. But what's your opinion on the FCC? So they're kind of like the they're kind of like the uncle you wish you never had. <laughs> um, you know, it, they the, if if you don't have somebody like the FCC, you know, how do you manage people? I mean, think about it from a public safety perspective. If if you start having somebody jam a public safety system, and you don't have somebody like the FCC to provide those regulations, who protects that? Who protects that that spectrum? Who protects it? And the problem with the FCC is they don't have the staffing that they used to have. They, they used to have enforcement bureaus that would go out and, and investigate these claims and, and, you know, and enforce the rules, but you just don't see that like you used to. Um, 
to me, I view the FCC when it comes to LMR, ham radio, public safety, whatever, I, I see them as the traffic cop that's uh, trying to make sure that everybody's staying in their lane, that they're staying where they're supposed to be. Um, but I think that's also critical to know that, you know, if, if, if we if we enter a time and i pray that it never comes where it's without rule of law then it really doesn't matter uh, what's out there but until that time we've got to know where those places are that we can and can't be and, and even discount the rules discount the fcc forget they're there we don't want anybody to know we exist in the tactical comms world until it's necessary for us to exist. So we've got to make sure that we know where we should be and where we shouldn't be so that people don't know that we exist. That's a good answer. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the big talking points as far as FCC is concerned, especially in the MCOM TACCOM world, and I love uh, terminal armament stance on this, FCC is the communications equivalent to what the ATF is to the firearms community. You know, there's and and here's how that kind of comes in. You know, obviously, yeah, there there needs to be some regulation, or it's going to be just the wild wild west on the radio, and everything's going to be like CB, which is a shit show. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I like shit shows. I, I like shit shows too, but I don't like a shit show everywhere. Uh, you know, there's there's got to be some kind of law and order. And, you know, where do you draw the line with that? It's a double-edged sword. You know, the FCC, you know, they say you can't encrypt uh, radio frequencies unless you're an LMR and you have a Part 90 license. Well, you know, as far as freedom of speech is concerned, that's kind of a freedom of speech violation because you can encrypt your email, encrypt your cell phone traffic. There's a lot of other voice encryptions that you can do. You know, you can have a Telegram chat that's encrypted. You can have a Signal chat that's encrypted. So... What's the harm in encrypting ham radio, no, VHF, UHF, HF? It's it's a slippery slope, but it's it's a valid question at the same time. Well, I think it is a valid question, and I think you know you've mentioned it, and we've talked about it on the chat some. You know, anytime you mention encryption in the ham radio world, heads explode, and they're you know lighting torches and getting ready to burn you at the stake. But uh, a lot of hams don't understand the why. For those of us that have been a part of fighting the fight to keep spectrum uh, because the one thing that's that i would say the fcc is interested in is they, they like auctioning spectrum to people that have lots of money the organization have lots of money and so the ham radio spectrum is somewhat protected from that until we give it up and so people like me who say all right look you know let's 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 slow down here a little bit let's let's think this through a little bit it's because of some of those fights that we've been a part of to protect that spectrum um i don't view them as the uh, atf of the first amendment i, I view them a, a little bit different they're almost non-existent to me um i look at what's out there for me uh, in so many other places to to be able to encrypt to be able to hide uh, ham radio to me is just the spectrum where i can go and learn to perfect my craft and when i perfect my skill and my trade and my craft i can come back over to lmr and just add the encryption to it um i, I don't I, i'm I, maybe i'm a little bit naive in that respect but um, I, I would rather hide in the LMR world and I had the ham roar because there is a growing number of ham radio operators and uh, Wyoming Survival talked about in the last podcast uh, where he's from up in Wyoming that nobody's around nobody's there there's 
always somebody listening. Uh, 146.52, just because you're giving call outs on that and nobody's answering, don't mean they're not listening. They just don't feel like talking to you at that moment. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the truth. I mean, I scan for 140 in my work truck. 146.52 is in my scan list and I hear people all the time and I'm just like, eh, I don't feel like talking today. So, I mean, it's there. Yeah. You, you know, so. It's protect, perfect our skill, protect, perfect our, our trade. God, civil, I'm starting to sound like you now, trying to say SIGINT. Um, <laughs> grow those skills in the ham radio world. And then when you come over to LMR, it's the same skill set. You're just adding encryption to it. Yeah, I can. I, I totally agree with that standpoint, too. Um, I, I, all of us here, I think, are, you know, ham radio operators you know, in, a, in a sense. I don't do a whole lot in the ham world but i i'll bounce around on repeaters and stuff i have my general license and i plan on getting into hf and uh, it's exactly like you said um you you use that area to operate free and and openly and learn how to you know especially if you're testing things like building antennas and and all that kind of stuff and um especially if you might be getting into radio kind of like i was in the beginning and you don't have anybody to talk to exactly, you know, your your team or whatever doesn't have radios uh, and, and that outlet uh, automatically, you know, through through the ham radio outlet, you will gain people to talk to. And and most of the ham radio community is extremely forthcoming with uh, with the information that they have and, and willing to help you. And and even um, I've had guys in the local area offer to give me coax and connectors and and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and you know what? I uh, I, I would put it like this. I, I, I wish that a, a portion of the hand bands allowed encryption to allow people to experiment so that they could kind of, you know, play with this stuff and figure it out. And and that might be a stepping stone into LMR. Um, or maybe even a portion of the LMR that would allow people to experiment. A little bit more like the ham radio community. Um, I'm not really sure what I'm trying to explain, but... So, yeah. No, you're, no, you're, you're, I know what you're, I'm picking up what you're putting down. You're, you know, for you, for your skill set, you want to learn more and experiment more with encryption. And, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the current day and time. You, it's not really legal doing ham radio, but it's also, you know, we talked about if, if somebody in your group, if you, if you've got an LLC, you own a business, whatever, apply for some of the itinerant LMR frequencies that is legal to run encryption on, uh, you know, that, that signal. And, you know, that's, that's cheap. Those itinerant uh, licenses are, are cheap to get. And, you know, and, and then it doesn't matter. Do what you want to as long as you, you're you're within the the power limits that's set on your license. And, you know, that's... Yeah, actually, absolutely. And that's something that I've done. You know, we have access to an itinerant frequency where we can uh, experiment with encryption. But... It would just I, I would feel a lot more comfortable for lack of better terms if there was something out there for the hams to uh, kind of experiment with LMR on encryption. And maybe it's like a uh, a technician plus license or something like that. Like, hey, you can get on these frequencies and experiment with encryption and kind of figure this stuff out on your own. And then if, if that's this something that you want to use. Uh, based off of the experiences you've done to get into LMR, then go for it. But uh, currently, nothing like that exists. And I, I personally would love if there was, you know, a block of frequencies that existed that allowed people to do that. But 
right now, you know, it's ham radio and it's LMR part 90 and there's no middle ground. Maybe what we do is when we convince that manufacturer to make the 220 DMR, we petition the FCC to allow encryption. That would that, be right? fantastic. If we could make 220 the <laughs> experimental encryption band, there's, there's very few hams on it already. It propagates uniquely. <laughs> Well, you know, it's just, uh, I'll say it's my opinion. Uh, And even on the ham bands, this is what what I was going to get into, is even on the ham bands, I don't understand what the exact problem is with, uh, or the problem that the FCC and hams have with running encryption on the ham bands. I think that you would have every right, like we kind of said earlier, you'd have every right to secure your communications as long as you are operating in, in, in uh, good practice on the spectrum, you're not interfering with, you know, other people and and all that kind of stuff that I don't understand what the exact problem with the encryption on the ham bands is other than the FCC can't monitor what you're saying on it. And I guess that kind of goes along with the whole thing on the ham bands, how you have to state your call sign, you know, before and after your transmissions and and you have to you know, re-identify every so often and that kind of stuff. And then the encryption would prevent that from happening. It would essentially nullify getting a ham license, I think is what. Well, what I don't think so much as, uh, I don't, I'm trying to hear something. I don't think it's so much the FCC monitoring. It's, I think it's just the rules, the way they were set up when ham radio was created. Um, and it's still the rules today. Uh, but I do, I will tell you, um, I don't remember what podcast it was on, but you guys, you know, you do not have to use your call sign to establish communications on ham radio. I could literally call on the radio and say, hey, Tito, this is Matt. He, he, you know, how's it going? That's legal in the FCC rules on ham radio. We only have to use our call sign at the end of our conversation or every 10 minutes, whichever comes first. But that's not kind of the point. You know, it's just it's just the rules, you know, and that's um, I, will that change someday? Maybe. I don't know. Um, you know, as for me and in, in our group, we've decided that we're just going to go over here to the itinerant section, and and that's where we're going to do our stuff. And and lots of people are over there with us, so that works out well for us. So yeah, exactly. uh, let's let's start taking this thing home real quick. Uh, looking through your page, uh, I did notice you have a YouTube channel. Uh, you got some uh, videos on there, like uh, how to get started with radio uh, kit, how to build a comms plan, jungle antennas how to talk on the radio, stuff like that. You got some more videos out there as well. What's uh, What would you say your intention is uh, with creating those videos, and uh, what do you want people to know? So I think for me, um, the YouTube channel started during COVID, and I needed a way to escape all of the stresses at work, and I started that with YouTube. Uh, the YouTube channel, I suck at building videos, if you can't tell. Um, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to get better, but you know, civil. You do the editing for this podcast. You know, editing is time consuming, and um, so the the video that I built, how to talk on the radio, came from a class I taught uh, to a, a, gr- a community group back in October and a lady at the end of the class she said man this class was great I enjoyed it I learned a lot out of it uh, I'm a technician class ham radio uh, operator I still don't know how to talk on a radio and that just really drove home because it, you know you guys being ham radio licensed ham radio operators nothing in the ham radio courses the license the testing teach you how to talk on a radio 
And so now when I teach classes, uh, I've got a handful of FRS radios. I give them out to each student now. And when we do introductions, you have to give your introduction out over the radio. Um, hey, I'm I'm so-and-so from here, and I, I want to learn this for the class. And we spend the class. If you have a question, you ask it on the radio. If you, uh, you know, have input, you give it on the radio. And it's just to get people used to talking on the radio. And so that was the, the mindset behind there. And then as Instagram has grown, um, I want to do some more step-by-step -step videos on how to use the Raspberry Pi scripts to build your own um, call sign list, your encryption keys, one-time pads, things like that. Things that, that seem to take traction on Instagram, I want to take a little more time and focus uh, in a little more in-depth on the YouTube side of it. Man, that's great, man. I'm glad you're doing stuff like that. Just like firearms, yeah, uh, that's awesome. fundamentals is key. You know, it's, it's very easy to get in the weeds on the technicalities and get too far down the road. So uh, I'm glad that you're doing that, you know. I've tried to make some of my posts similar content. Uh, it, I very well could and probably should back up a little bit and hammer down a little bit of more fundamentals and uh, stuff like that. But uh, glad you're doing that, man. I will say you guys are encouraging me um, watching you grow and watching you learn, watching you share your experiences on Instagram. Um, that that's so encouraging to me and it's encouraging even more to see how many people are starting to come up and start sharing their experiences because we can learn together a lot better than we can learn by ourselves. Yeah, yeah no I totally agree with that. And that's like the whole, um, the whole like interaction this last week, uh, between like me and SIGINT systems with the whole Motorola TMS thing and trying to, uh, and trying to. Uh, what am I trying to say? Trying to mitigate the attack vector that he basically was using against the TMS system to ping radios because of the acknowledge acknowledgments that the that the P25 radios use when sending packet data, and how that's all that and how the headers and the radio IDs and everything are happening happening in the clear, and you can basically make a uh, an SDR pretend to be a radio in the network and trick the radios into pinging those acknowledgments. Uh, without the radio users knowing it. And we basically just came to the conclusion that there's no good way to stop it from happening. You just get the, the TMS system wasn't engineered uh, for emissions control. It was engineered for, you know, public safety and stuff to use a packet data system because cops and federal agents don't have to worry about people direction finding them necessarily. They're a nation state with tons of infrastructure and backup. That's interesting stuff. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's good to have some challengers out there. That's part of the testing and uh, research and development aspect of what we're all doing. You know, I think I think we need to challenge each really? other, and challenging each other publicly is an educational platform in itself in many aspects. Iron sharpens iron. sharpens iron. iron. Go. Shit gets worked out in the field. <laughs> sure does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, man, let's uh, uh, let's wrap this up. Matthew, man. thank you for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Where are we at? Well, I, I've had a ball. Thank you guys for the invitation to be here and for sharing some of my stories and helping get the word out. Yeah, absolutely, man. And we'd love to have you back on sometime. Oh, yeah. We, ha we didn't even get to talk about his whole fire truck thing. And that th that's awesome. But I mean, we'll talk on that for like at least another 30 minutes. So we better just save that for yeah, next time. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, 
Let's make a little bit of a outline for next time we do this. We try to do that, and it just... I mean, actually, I think we did pretty good this time. We did, we bit, we did all right. So... <laughs> Right on. It was awesome having you on, Matt. And I uh, I really enjoy the content you're posting. I'd say keep it up. I haven't checked out your YouTube yet, but I'm definitely going to check it out. And I'm going to pick up a copy of your book, too, even though I have a I have a bad track record of buying books and then they just sit on my dresser. But uh, I'll get to them one day. <laughs> yeah, same. I'm uh, I'm definitely once we hang up uh, with the podcast recording, I'm, I'm going to go buy a copy and uh, look forward to reading it. Thank you. I, I, I hope you enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed writing it. And uh, uh, it's 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 a great, great time. And, and along those lines, buy the book Partisan Operator Journals. It's I think it's available on Amazon as well. It's another good step-by-step book. Right on, right on, man. Yeah, well, I'll have to look into that. So, uh, Matthew, nice. where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Tactical Comms on Instagram, Twitter. You can find it uh, on my YouTube channel, Tactical Comms, as well. And, uh, you know, I, as, as we talked about earlier with my experience with Tito, I do answer my DMs. So feel free to reach out. Pleasure is all mine. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, we appreciate you coming on so much and sharing your experience with us. It's been a very valuable conversation. All right, everybody. Y'all have a good night. Nice. Good night. Y'all too. Yeah.